up, guys? Welcome back to the Levers Podcast. I'm Tej. I'm here with my usual co-conspirators, Bo Hack and Shake. And today we're going to be talking about order without design. Um, this is sort of a uh, a mental model, if you will, um, but traditionally talked about in the context of urban design. Um, so it's based on a book um, of its namesake by Alain Bertroud. Um, and it basically talks about two competing um, approaches to a city's growth. So one is the kind of top-down planned approach, which says that the city bureaucrats and the city planners take a look at the city. Um, they try to make a projection about what the city needs, what the people, businesses, um, and enterprise need, and they build those things into the city. This is urban planning, like, like Corbusier, if you're familiar. And the other side is the idea of order without design. The idea that that sort of planning uh, from a very high level is a bit arrogant because you can't possibly know what the collective desires um, and goals and needs of the city's inhabitants are. So instead, you take a step back, you create good rules and structure, for example, um, public transport and delineation between public and private land. And then you let the city build and grow itself in an iterative way where it sometimes fails, sometimes succeeds, but either way is free to do so. So sort of a hands-off approach. Um, and while this is relevant to urban design, you can think about it more broadly, right? It is often arrogant um, and an oversight to try to plan too far in the future or too widely in terms of the breadth of your activity or behavior. And instead, you can take the approach that um, you got to remain humble. You don't know what the next month or year, um, what will ensue during it. And so instead, you go in with an open mind and you try things and you tinker, you lean in, you meet new people, you try some, some new initiatives. And out of that tinkering comes a sense of order um, that gives you sort of productivity that would exceed had you gone way back to the beginning and tried to plan everything um, from scratch. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today uh, with the Levered Lads. Yeah, so uh, since uh, the Order Without Design book inspired this conversation, I thought we'd kick it off with a little rant about what our favorite cities are, um, since it kind of captures the idea pretty well. So, boys, you've traveled a little bit. Where are some places that you've really loved? Shake, give her a go, baby. Rio de Janeiro, I think. And what you were, you were, you studied abroad there, right? I I studied abroad in in uh, Sao Paulo, but um, yeah, Rio, Rio definitely doesn't have <laughs> much order at all. Um, I mean, it's it's very like haphazardly. It's you know, same with Sao Paulo actually. Like the cities, both kind of grew too fast for anyone to, you know, plan anything. Um, so. They just lack a lot of infrastructure and like Rio's famous for the, you know, really expensive, like beach resorts on Copacabana. They have the, these favelas like immediately right behind it. <clears throat> and so um, when I was there, we didn't stay at the nice resorts, but when we were on the beach, like a kid actually came and stole my cell phone and we had to chase him down and stuff. So it's pretty crazy. And he got scared. He got scared. So he just, he just, he got scared. So he just threw it up in the air back at me. Did you catch it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's unreal. <laughs> this dude is like something unreal. Out of like he came up and he was like, "Can I have some of your drink?" And I was like, "No, dude, it's like you're you're like 12 years old." And I was drinking alcohol and <laughs> and he just kept getting closer. He's like, "Oh, come on, come on, man!" He just grabbed my phone. And he <laughs> started running. It's crazy. So if it, if it was like kind of just like a a crazy a crazy place, like what made you like it so much? You know, like some people wouldn't want their phones being stolen. <laughs> 12 yeah. that's that's yeah. good ball Play. that's deep ball <laughs> playing football with your cell phone um what made me like it so much i mean it, it kind of felt like the so i would say sao paulo felt like the new york city of brazil and and uh rio felt like the la of brazil um it was it's right next to the beach and it just it's hard to explain why i liked it i mean it had a it had a lot of cool um attractions i guess you know that's where like the the famous cristo the redeemer is you know that big statue where he has his arms out and um 
they have some crazy architecture there, but really it just kind of, it had like a lot of like, it had a, a lot of life there. It felt very like, like a vibrant city, you know, in, in Brazil, people are always like sitting out, like drinking beers or just eating out in these little cafes and everyone's very social. And, um, I like that about it. Dude, Rio's actually is such a, uh, it's such a topical drop for this pod. Cause, um, tropical and drop? all of these topical tropicals <laughs> topical and tropical drop um in a lot of these books <laughs> that talk about order without design and like the informal sector of economies and real estate like fa the favela ecosystem is like the first plug because it's just like these like vast shanty towns which like there are no property rights like you can't get a mortgage from a bank on them right like the government's not going to defend your property rights but people organize these informal sectors of like corrugated iron shanties and there are raw rules and laws built into how those people cooperate like rent is often collected on time and if you don't pay rent you're just removed from your home by like a violent cabal that does the law enforcement for that area this is all ex extra judi judicial right yeah uh the favelas are like a, a very interesting outgrowth yeah. it's like it, it just like gets to the to the comparison between like those cities evolving as if they were biological organisms right like they they evolve these systems and these systems work outside the traditional information sector and that's kind of just that people are going to do it you, you, i mean you don't you don't need to sit you know in your ivory tower and tell them what to do they're going to do it either way yeah yeah dude if if anyone um if you guys are interested or anyone's interested there's a movie called elite squad and a lot of people have probably seen this movie. It's called City of God. It's like one of the most famous Brazilian movies. But Elite Squad is like much more like action, violent kind of thing. But it's all about favelas and how in favelas, like the police oftentimes are afraid to go into the worst. Like they don't even go in, you know, they don't even go into the worst favelas because it's basically run by gangs. It's really, it's really wild. Well, a lot of people dislike uh, the favelas or like they don't like what they stand for, but then um there's always the example is it brasilia basically the like top-down planned um urban area that was just way out in the middle of nowhere and it was like they, they made it from complete scratch but no one ended up living there um, yeah. it was it was it was designed to be the the capital wasn't it yeah yeah so they always contrast the favelas with brasilia because like um Basically, it seems like the favelas are bad because it's like poverty relative to, you know, Western countries. But for them, it's better than the, you know, top-down planned um, urban area, which basically like from the from the planner's mind, it would be way better. But just based on where it's located, it's away from all the jobs. So um, no one ends up actually moving there and it's just impractical. Um, and it kind of, that kind of dichotomy captures the uh, bottom-up versus top-down process and why top-down processes often fail. Uh, I mean, an, an, ex an extension of that is... Uh, um, it's Brasilia. Oh. You, like, it's exactly what you're saying, right? It's like, this is like, you can totally see some, you know, city planner guy like, oh, this is going to be perfectly symmetrical and stuff. And that's... It is I mean, beautiful, this, but no. This is very... It, it It is beautiful, but in like a very, very organized, unnatural way. Like it's just beautiful because it's clean, right? Yeah. Um, this reminds me a lot of... Um, so like Corbusier, who is like a... He's like the figurehead of this top-down urban planning um, narrative. Um, he was a Swiss architect and um, he designed the city. Like this is like his... His magnum opus was the city in India called Chandigarh. And he designed it to be like immaculate, perfectly organized, planned city with beautiful residential, like government buildings over here, certain sectors for certain activities, right? All planned. Um, when you go there now, I think it was built in like the 50s. I can't remember exactly. When you go there now, like all of the stuff of value, like all of the culture of the city, all of the craftsmanship, like the best espresso and the best teas, all of that stuff. It's, it's fascinating. It has all migrated to the informal slums that sit next to the government buildings. Nothing you want of value. There's no like, there's no mixing in the big buildings, right? They're just like these, like these empty edifices that were built for a purpose that didn't end up playing out. 
I think you see that with the favelas. Um, you see that with the Brasilia, Sao Paulo, Rio example. It like happens time and time again. Like these these planners do not anticipate what's needed, or they very rarely do. I'll say. Um, to answer the question, my favorite city is uh, cities, I guess, Mexico City and, and Istanbul. Um, I think Mexico City is like a brilliant example of just um, unfettered growth. It's just like a, it's kind of like LA, um, except LA has a lot of, I think, urban planning policies. It's just like this vast outgrowth, just like, it's like a teeming, like termite hill. It's just, it's unthinkably large. Um, and you have all these informal settlements and all these like micro neighborhoods, um, which is sweet. And, and I like, and I like Istanbul because Istanbul is, um, it's like a little bit of a cliche, but it's the bridge from East to West. It's the only large city that straddles two continents. And that, that kind of like explains the whole story. Like it's a cliche, but it's, it's accurate. It's uh, it's a crazy enigmatic place. You'll see a, a mosque with like pious Muslims on their knees right next to a club you know, with like young lads and girls cranking beers, doing drugs, um, just like perfect clash East and West. I've never seen anything like it. So that's, that's me. Yeah. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd agree with the Mexico city part partially because we went there, but I think the main reason and why I like the cities I like is, um, for, yeah, the energy, and kind of the diversity and architecture and environments that you walk into, you can tell that it's like been an evolutionary process where things are popping up seemingly random, but then what, you know, when the, when it ends up being sustainable sticks around and that's why you get this kind of like rainforest type ecosystem vibe and in, in cities with a lot of energy versus, you know, if you go to a suburb and big American cities are very sterile, um, they've been planned, uh, like there's just not a lot of life going on there. And if there is life, it's because people have kind of just like broke out of how it was planned to be. So I definitely like the aesthetic of, you know, um, spontaneity and just kind of locally emergent behavior. Um, anytime you use the word emergent, you got to move your hands. I guess if they're listening to the podcast, <laughs> I can't see that. <laughs> have you guys uh i mean crisp you have shake have you been to greenwich village or washington square park yes so um in the 60s robert moses who's like a classic urban planning revitalizer type and he wanted to build a causeway he wanted to revitalize greenwich village and build a causeway through that park and like looking back that sort of like planning would have been so devastating for that neighborhood. Like that neighborhood's very dear to my heart. It's where I lived for two years uh, with a friend of mine. You guys have both been there. Like it's it's one of these parks. It's like it's like on it's on 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 some list in everyone's mind about like some of the greatest parks in the world. It's just like has this unique energy. Like there's all kinds of cats in there. There's a dude who just like plays the piano, rolls his piano into the park every single day. How does he get the piano? No one knows. How does he transport the piano? No one knows. But like all this sort of behavior that happens in the park, it's just like this perfect, um, this melting pot that's just had years and years of history. Um, but had the urban planner, had the top down um, architect been able to do his thing, it might look nothing like it, it has today. There'd be a causeway literally severing Greenwich Village, severing downtown from Midtown. But instead we got this, this, this beautiful growth. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good example. Yeah. It's funny that all of us, you know, I didn't even, I didn't even think of ch choosing a, a favorite city that kind of lined up with some of the principles of the, of the books that, uh, that, that you mentioned. And, um, but it's funny how that works. It's that it's, that it is evolutionary and it's, it's like a natural organic almost process of, of yeah. a city, a, a beautiful city growing, you know? By the way, I should say I should I should say I feel like I uh, gave short shrift to Jane Jacobs here, but Jane Jacobs was responsible for uh, fighting off Robert Moses and his uh, and his acolytes. She like drummed up in like an urban um, like a a group of um, like urban defenders to fight off that that movement, um, and her whole shtick was. Uh, she believed that cities grow organically and for a vibrant city, like she describes Greenwich Village as 
vibrant for a very particular reason, which I think is is accurate and sort of a unique viewpoint. She says that like a vibrant part of a city requires that different types of people use it for different reasons at different times throughout the day. And so it sounds like sort of maybe complicated, maybe cliche, I don't know, but the idea is good. Like if you have a neighborhood like, um, like Fidei, downtown, downtown Manhattan, all that happens there is commerce, right? It's just big glitzy buildings, commerce happens. So from eight to five, people are using that area of the city and it's vibrant. The rest of the time it's dead because no one lives there, no one plays there, right? So it's just work eight to five and then it's done. So there's no natural mixing. You go to Greenwich Village, Greenwich Village has some of the offices downtown, it has some parks, it has a lot of restaurants and bars, and it has a lot of apartments. So you have four different types of uses, so four different types of users, and because of those variety of uses, you have people moving in and out of that area all day. So it gives this like sort of constant energy to the area that just begets more energy. And I think it's sort of an interesting idea. If you let things evolve like that, people will naturally associate in those ways. And then you, you throw kind of a flywheel into effect. Had Robert Moses come in in the 60s, that flywheel wouldn't have had the, you know, you know the interluding 50 years kind of thing. Yeah, and the, um, the order without design comes from actually Hayek, who is like an Austrian economist. And his whole shtick, or part of one of his shticks, was that basically the reason top-down planning doesn't work is a top-down planner can't have all the information they need to plan uh, the economy. Um, and how that kind of extends to this, you know, urban planning is there's no one smart enough to say, oh, I need to plan for these four groups of people and I need to schedule them in at these times of day. And I need to build everything in such a way that, you know, the work people will be here at the right time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so it's the reason that the top down planning ends up failing is that you just can't get people smart enough to foresee how everything should work in a complex ecosystem, you know? And I think that's kind of the tricky part about um, this whole topic is you kind of, to, to agree with the bottom up order, you have to acknowledge that we have limited ability to reason and plan. Um, and even if we try our best, it's not gonna do as well as kind of the market and the people. Um, which I think that's, I think that's cool. You know, it's almost, it's borderline spiritual. Like you're putting your faith in just like this ecosystem of people to arrive at a sustainable solution. Um, but we've kind of been, you know, taught that that's impossible or, you know, I mean, the way school works with like, it's very hierarchical and there's a top-down plan and curriculum. So I think we, we don't necessarily, um, we don't necessarily get taught about how markets and ecosystems work. Yes, you know. Yeah, they're really Ro interesting. Robert Moses was, I mean, he's he's sort of a he's a double-edged sword because like he was in a lot of ways a visionary, right? Like, so th this this book, Future and Its Enemies, by Virginia Postrel, I think in a lot of ways it's a it's an extension of Order Without Design. So the dynamists are those who 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 pursue order without design bottom up. And then the stasis are the one who, who sort of want to keep things the same and or um, project and guide where things are going. Um, so Robert Moses, he's, he's sort of not a stasis in that he has these big revolutionary visionary ideas about revitalizing neighborhood. He wants to change shit, right? So he's more like active and um, an intrepid than a stasist. But at the very same time, like he had some very, very arrogant ideas. Like for example, the causeway going through Greenwich Village, just assuming he knew what was best for an entire neighborhood, understanding all of the individual decisions and needs of all of the individual people and communities interacting in that neighborhood. Arrogant and excessive. Another thing that my mom told me is um, on Long Island where she grew up, um, they, designed a series of beaches for people to go, people from the city to go relax on. Um, and I'm not going to get this quite right, but Robert Moses effectively designed it such that the beaches were so far away that in order to access the beaches, this is early 60s. So we're, we're talking about like peak civil rights where 
New York was coming along, but there was still racist and racist undertones, at least restrictive. Um, the beaches were built so far away that you had to have access to a public bus to get there. And the public buses that went out there were inherently more accessible um, by white passengers. So there's like a lot of there's a lot of Robert Moses stuff going on that's really not quite so great. Yeah. And and Jane Jacobs, she she wasn't a city planner, right? Jane Jacobs, I, 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 I what was her be, background? I mean, she was a community organizer. She was a writer and a community organizer and a mother. I mean, I don't. She definitely wasn't like a PhD in urban planning. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting with this is um, it definitely, you know, applies at this big societal level. Um, but it also like it, it, it interacts at the personal level. So there's like the Chinese concept of Wu Wei, which I think loosely translates to like inaction. Um, and it's kind of this idea of a lot of our solutions, you know, come from coming up with a plan, like being very proactive, fixing everything, um, where Wu Wei is like kind of letting things around you happen and letting solutions emerge naturally. And I think there's kind of an analog there where um, sometimes in your personal life, you just have to be patient and let things, let things just kind of emerge and evolve and then good things will pop out versus if you have everything planned to the last second that means at the t and you stick to that plan that means at the moment you planned you would have had to known how everything was going to go um, and it's just impossible to do so um i think it could be cool to think through like you know how that's applied to our lives um i mean a very like small example for me is uh just like when traveling you know I think it's easy to try to plan everything single thing you're going to do throughout the day because you want to do as many things as possible. But I think I feel like most people when they have like good travel stories is because they were just open to the randomness of where they were traveling, you know, and something crazy happens to them. They meet someone really interesting or they, you know, stumble into a a restaurant or a neighborhood that they never even heard of and like they get a really interesting perspective, you know? And I think that's an example of, you know, not having everything planned out, things emerge naturally um, better than they could have. Yeah, yeah, I, I was thinking, you know, it is, it would be cool to talk about kind of how this applies because, you know, none of us uh, are, are planning any cities anytime soon, but um, yeah, the ideas are, are really universal. It's something I think about a lot and I'm sure someone's written about this and you know, has a, has a catchphrase for it, but just kind of the, the difference of, and I'm thinking I've talked about on this podcast, but like the difference of kind of like making something happen or trying to like add something to your life or to the situation, as opposed to like letting something happen, which is often kind of like removing, it's kind of the, the negative space of it. Um, that I think it, I think that's exactly what, uh, th that's exactly what we're talking about with cities, right? It's like, you can kind of, this guy, this fucking corporate guy, Robert Moses, tries to come and like stick his dick in the middle of, you know, Greenwich <laughs> Village and like fuck everything up. But yeah. Um, but instead, it's like, no, you don't need to do anything. Like it's, and it's, it's also funny too. This is different, but um, how that's a Chinese idea. And it's kind of, it's kind of the idea of like our economy, ideally, is, is a free market where you're, where you're letting things happen. But, um, I know all of us kind of agree on this, but with, you know, our government often tries to kind of like add something or make something happen, fix something. But um, I don't know, humans are pretty like resilient and, and adaptable. Um, and yeah, and I think in our in our own lives, like to remember that that we can adapt and, and change is, is, a, is a good thing to, to like to keep in mind, you know? Um, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling right now, but yeah. The, the uh, I think you just brought up an interesting, maybe not a contradiction, but at least on the surface, a contradiction. So the idea of Wu Wei being a Chinese ideal and saying, you know, live and let live, let things happen, let solutions emerge organically. I mean, if you look at the 
most flagrant examples of top-down planning. They're the Great Leap Forward in China and the Soviet Union, right? So it's interesting how Wu Wei comes as a Chinese proverb because my guess is it applies to the individual. In other words, don't try to solve all your own shit. Don't try to get forward as an individual. Focus on like the collective goals and let Big Papa take care of the plan, right? There's a plan. Just sit back and let the plan un unroll yeah. itself. Um, yeah. But I mean, if you look, I mean, if you look back at um, the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, like Mao's whole shtick was to suppress individual contributions, like suppress the cooperation of the intellectuals. And we're going to focus on these agrarian quotas and these goals and the empowerment of, um, of the little guy. And that didn't work. And the Soviet Union tried to do the same thing. They socialized everything. They gave you health care, health care in theory, housing. Everyone had food rations. All the jobs were provided solely by the government. There wasn't really a private sector. That failed. It eroded. When you see time and time again, these things not really working um, all that well. And there's sort of an interesting, I think like a lot of these order without design conversations are interesting in the concept or in the, in the context of, of military strategy. So I was reading about this Prussian military strategy called Auftragstaktik. And it basically says that if you're a general, you can go about um, achieving a mission, a goal two ways. You can tell your troops what the goal is and how to execute it, right, top down. Or you can tell your troops what the goal is and let them come up with the idea of how to execute it. And or taking a step back, you can give them a, a, a broad goal such as, like, we're trying to win this war, right? And let them decide the micro goals. That's Auftrag's tactic. Um, the idea being, you provide them a, a base of resources, like a, a protocol layer, which is robust training and, like, the physical resources necessary to achieve something. So in the context of a city, this would be a body of law, law enforcement, public transport, and delineation of public and private lands. And then you sit back and you let the agents do their thing. And as you'll see, a lot of the most successful commanders in, in military history have taken this approach. Some haven't, like Napoleon was a very top-down lab. Um, but if you look at like how Mao fought the nationalists in China when he pre-Great Leap Forward, this is what he did, right? He gave, he gave his soldiers this idea that here's what we're going to do. We're going to do guerrilla warfare, we're going to isolate the nationalists, and then we're going to attack relentlessly. And then they did their thing, and these things sort of work out organically. So I think there's, like, getting back to levers, right, this order without design idea, it, it crops up very predictably and successfully, like, across domains. There's, like, there's a consilience here. Yeah, it's actually interesting. And um, I mean, Amazon's essentially like a giant country or military, but <laughs> except they're not, they're peaceful. Um, but they, they? Uh, I guess it depends who you ask. Um, but they essentially tried to do the same thing where they have like the idea of a single threaded owner and teams have charters. And the idea is that, you know, they want to push down control to each local team and local division such that at the top like there's no one at the top that has to plan everything right and that and that's part of the reason why um you can see amazon enter so many businesses because they're they're part of the ethos of the company is to push command down um but it's interesting in practice when you get to start getting a company really big and it's growing really fast it's hard to actually enforce that so even though like you can speak to this idea of like local control and uh, versus, you know, command from the top. Uh, it's, it's harder in practice. So Alexa was like grew to be a giant organization really fast. Um, and, and it kind of uh, moved away from that. So there was like the kind of the directors and the engineers at top were trying to plan everything um, for like a thousand person organization. And that ends up just stalling progress. So why? What, what's one reason why um, 
you know, this kind of pushing control down locally is, is, is really important. It's because otherwise the person at the top becomes the bottleneck on all decision making, right? And that's a really brittle system. Um, and so actually I've heard a lot of managers say like their job as a manager is to be such that if they left, everything would keep running, which is uh, is is pretty interesting, right? Because I think when people first ever start as a manager, they're like micromanagers and they're checking everything, all of their employees' work, and they feel like they're responsible for everything. And then you have like the sage managers who've been at it for a while, and they like yeah. they're like, I need to go on vacation for a month to make sure you guys know what's going on, which <laughs> which means they're simultaneously working less and doing a better job, which is kind of, and that that is a lever, but. Yeah. It's interesting that I, I was going to bring that I was going to ask you guys about um, your, you know, experience in the business world uh, with like top down versus bottom up. I think I think I've had bosses who want like they in their head, they think that they're top down, but they're like, they're definitely not, you know, um, or sorry, they think they're they think that they're they think they're uh, cultivating like a bottom up kind of system, but they're they are top down. Um, and definitely, I think the the best people like, you know, they do a really good job hiring and then they put people in position. That's kind of how my job is right now. I think my new job, it's like they give me a lot of freedom and they're kind of like, you know, you can come to us if you have questions, but like go fucking figure it out. Trial by fire shit, you know? And if I like don't show initiative and I'm just lazy, like they'll just fire me and, and try to hire somebody else really good, you know? Um, whereas my last job, it was, which I, I liked my last job, but it was very much like, Hey, we're going to be with you every step of the way. And this is exactly how you do. This is the formula, you know, um, which I, I prefer the, uh, the more bottom up approach right now. That's how my, that's how my, like the CTO is. He's not involved in the day to day at all, but he's like, here's what we're doing. We're trying to 10 X our revenue. That's the goal. Like you guys figure out what your part in that is, you know? The harder the problems you're, you're working on and the more difficult the situation, the better the bottom up works. Because if it's top down, you're bit, again, you're just bottlenecked to the, the, the person who's coming up with all the commands, right? Um, so if you know Big exactly, Papa. yeah, if you know exactly what you're supposed to do and it's all already been solved, then it's better just to like treat people like robots and tell them exactly what to do. But if there's uncertainty, like you don't know how to get to 10x revenue, then you want all your employees, like all channeling all their brain power and having them all trying to figure it out. Um, and I think that's kind of why you see this, uh, you know, bottom up growth. Like you don't you don't see growth from top down control, right? Because it's not very adaptive. You have the plan and they just issue it to the people. And, and try to enforce it. And there's no room for creativity. Um, but if, if you know the solution to a problem, like the top-down control can work really well because it's very efficient, you know? It's like, just do this thing. And if, if you've already mastered the problem, then it's good. The issue is when, you know, you're in an, the environment is less certain or something changes, that's when top-down control kind of becomes super brittle, um, which is, is more the rule than the exception. But... I think, I think that's an interesting uh, extension of the top-down versus bottom-up uh, conversation. If you think about, um, if you think about organisms or, um, or uh, you know, warring soldier bases, like once you start planning, that, that assumes a certain size and like rigidity. And like Chris said, like rigidity begets... Um, brittleness pretty much immediately so what you end up doing is when you're a certain size and you've built up all these resources you end up hardening and protecting and then trying to crowd out so you, what your moat becomes is like your pure mass and trying to monopolize and exploit the underlying cash flows or whatever resource you're trying to exploit right if you're if you're a huge military you use your military size to invade areas and then crowd out the territory's inhabitants but what the bottom up does is it gives you um, 
resilience, your, your, your power comes from a different place. Your power comes from you being amorphous in a way and being able to adapt to circumstances and grab opportunities as they come. And what that means is if you're amorphous like that, your defense against competitors, your moat isn't so much like the, the bulwarks, the walls you build around, but your very maneuverability is almost impossible to place. And it allows you to solve problems so much more quickly and hunt down like lines of inquiry and business lines so much more quickly. Like early Amazon, we're talking about Amazon. Like the culture was, you know, Bezos made a few good decisions and then he allowed interest groups to go hunt down lines of inquiry and business lines. And there was a ton of failure. The vast majority of everything was failure, but AWS came out of that, right? And then when you have AWS, which is an immensely profitable build, uh, business, then you can blitz scale on commerce. You can take losses on commerce, right? And it was, that, it was that amorphous maneuverability early on that ultimately made it into this thing that it's now kind of trapped. I mean, I imagine Amazon will continue to innovate, but it's sort of on that precipice of innovators dilemma where it has these cash cows and it's built this hierarchy, this great big thing. And it looks like in some ways it's going to you know, exclusionary moat mode as opposed to amorphous building mode. But it's kind of a natural progression of, 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 all, of all things, cities, companies, biological yeah. organisms. I, um, I'm reminded of, uh, I, I saw this interview with Dan Held, who's like a you know, heavy Bitcoin maximalist, but he used to, he, he, I think he was head of growth or something at Uber. And he talked about um, how Uber's culture, it had like, they really valued people kind of trying to like, you know, in the, in the corporate hierarchy, they, they wanted people underneath to like challenge their bosses, challenge their managers. Like it was a big part of it. Like you got props if you like proved your manager was wrong and got a better idea. And, um, and I was just Googling it. So one of their like, you know, little models is we value ideas over hierarchy. And, and he was saying like, it's actually true. You know, a lot of companies will say this is the culture and it's not, but he was like, no, that's actually true. Like they really wanted people to challenge each other. And I think um, in the case of Uber, I don't know the history of Uber Eats, but I, I read an article recently and I just pulled it up um, that Uber Eats is has like double the revenue now of the uh, Uber mobility. So like the ride sharing and stuff. Um, and I would imagine that Uber Eats is, was kind of, it was like a, you know, they, they, it was probably something that was kind of disruptive and somebody brought up like, hey, let's, let's do this. It probably sounded crazy at the time, you know, but then you look at it and it's like, oh, wow, well now they're making double the revenue and same, like same with AWS, right? It's like, what was Amazon an online bookstore at one point? And now they're providing, you know, cloud infrastructure for like the government and every, you know, fortune 500 it's, it's, so it's, it's pretty cool. It's being agile. The, the, the Uber, the Uber example is, is an interesting one. Um, I, I didn't really know about the, um, the very iterative experimental, culture of the company. I mean, it makes sense. It was a successful web 2.0 company. It's got to have some elements of that in the early days. What I do know about Uber though, which, um, which may be more, uh, more ably, um, or it enables them to have that experimental culture is, um, early on Uber did not try to build out its infrastructural elements. It outsourced those to specialists. So, you know, it didn't try to build out its own payment APIs and payment structures. It outsourced that to Stripe. It didn't try to build out its own GPS. It outsourced that to Google Maps. It didn't try to build out its own cloud. It outsourced that to AWS, right? It had the, it had the protocol later. It had the base resources such that it could go try to specialize in these lines of inquiry. And I think only if you have those like very basic building blocks that you can recombine, that you can build on top of, does it enable you um, at all to have that experimental type of culture, which ends up allowing you to specialize to so like Amazon, AWS, and e-commerce, Uber, Uber Eats, and then ride sharing. Only with those basic building blocks, which again, you see across the board, right? Auftrag tactic in, in military. You see like rule of law and public transport in cities. Like just provide this and then let the people or the, the groups do their thing. I think you just, it's, it's a constant pattern. Yeah. I think, uh, um, an interesting thing then like relating that to personal life is, okay. You don't want to over plan. Um, 
and because then that crowds out like the spontaneity and kind of the emergence of you know like value in your life but you have to plan it's like kind of paradoxical right um i'm kind of dealing with this my life right now because i'm unemployed and you know figuring out what to do and everyone's asking you what you know what are you doing every day (laughs) every day and i don't have a good answer um And so then you get like anxious, like, oh, am I not doing anything? Right. Uh, And so like, should I go get another job right now? Because I'm not doing anything. But once I get another job that locks me into something that, you know, might not be what's best for me. And so I need to be patient. And but, you know, uh, I still need to be doing something each day while I wait for like kind of the things to evolve around me. And I guess what I think about there is like, okay, what, what are the invariants? that I should invest in while I'm waiting for everything to evolve around me. And that invariants are, you know, the thing that uh, no matter which way life goes, you know, for the next year, the 100 different ways it could go, I'm going to be happy that I spent today doing that thing because any different plan, it'll end up being valuable. So for me right now, that's, you know, know, working on coding and Ethereum development and just reading about things I'm interested in. But I think that's kind of my kind of view is, you know, planning doesn't work. There could be 100,000 different plans going forward, but I still need to plan. So knowing that, what should I do? You know, try to invest um, in the invariants that are going to be useful in any case, which is kind of what like a state or a big company should do, right? Like they don't know exactly what's going to happen, but they can't just go to their you know, <laughs> you go to their shareholders and be like, we don't know what's going to happen. We'll find out, right? Like it's kind of the interesting um, dilemma of being limited in our planning ability. So um, I think that's the best strategy. I was raised very much in a way to um, try to look as far forward as possible and plan things out on a very granular basis, um, which I think provided a good structure. But as I've gotten older, I mean, I used to plan everything like, like, Chris and, and, and shake from back in the day. I, I imagine you got, you got a taste of it as well. I liked everything to be neat. I liked to be able to expect an outcome and that outcome to happen. It didn't always happen, but planning has done very well for my family. And so something that I've, um, I've tried to revise going into, um, proper adulthood is knowing when the planning should stop, knowing what you should plan for. Um, there are certain things that, you know, simply must be planned in advance because they're huge advantages and other things where if you over plan and you don't build, I mean, you can, you can plan randomness. I think that's, what's key. Like you can focus on some of the invariants and you should build randomness into, into your life in sort of a predictable way. So for example, when I was working, um, everything was very, very planned. I would go to my office every day. I would get there at eight. I would leave at seven. Um, I would get my paycheck. I would get drunk on the re- the weekends, read on Sundays. And it was day in, day out, sort of the same shit. Um, everything was secure. Everything was planned. When I qu- quit, everything was completely insecure. I decided to move to Turkey. Instead of reaching out to people, trying to find some stopgap job, reach out to the various connections I might have had, Um, I decided uh, to lean into some sort of the randomness and iterative nature of life. I got over there and things just sort of fall into place, right? You end up like building new strategies, new ways of navigating life in a new place, just like you would anywhere, right? You end up adapting and evolving and meeting people. I would go to the same coffee shop because people were good to me there. I would meet some Americans there. I ended up meeting a bunch of Turks who knew the Americans. This one random Turk I met, right? Um, I was doing some personal training and I decided I needed a scooter. So I bought a scooter in Turkey, bought a scooter. I was 45 minutes off the mainland, sitting in this used motorcycle warehouse with these bunch of Turks, didn't speak a word of English. We're all sipping tea and we had settled on a price. Somehow I'd, 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 I'd negotiated a price for this colossal scooter, like, you know, 250 cc's, which was going to, which is going to be my little like mobile node to do my personal training to make some money, which again was like, Complete order without design. I was hoping I'd be able to train people. And Swift wasn't allowing my money to go through. It was like middle of the night back in the States, so I couldn't call my parents. So I was just sitting in this warehouse, drinking tea, couldn't get money. And this lad who was like 
this Turkish dude who had started a bunch of businesses in Turkey. I'd met him twice. I reached out to him. There was, there, he was the last resort. There, there's no one else you reach out to in this, in this context. You, you just have, a, you have an intuition that a person might be able to help. And on the spot, he wired me $3,500 to give to these Turkish guys for the motorcycle so I could get back to the mainland. And then I had my scooter and I went back to the mainland. I ended up building a whole bunch of client bases so I could travel to only if I had the scooter, right? So this was like a pretty wild thing for me to just to dive in head first into this uncertainty. But what ends up happening is um, you figure it out, right? Like you adapt to the circumstances. And had you wound life back all the way to the beginning and tried to plan it all out, like the quality of life and like the enrichment probably would have been much, much lower. So I think there is a balance to be struck. Like you got to plan certain things, but if you leave room for randomness, like really great things can happen, which is something that I've had to learn firsthand to really realize that you, you, you sometimes need to take your foot off the, the, the planning gas pedal. That, that is a fucking amazing story. <laughs> that was, you told that story really well. And it remind it honestly reminds me a lot of, um, when I was studying abroad, just like being in these situations where you're like, where, like, how the fuck did I get here and what's going to happen? And, but yeah, a lot of times it's like the most, I don't know, it's the most growth or, you know, the, the most, like, I don't know, sometimes the most beautiful things can come out of these like r completely random serendipitous, uh, times, you know, I liked what Chris said earlier too, about planning a vacation. Uh, I think it's actually something in, there's some thing in psychology about this, but, um, yeah, when you have expectations over specifically like a holiday or a trip and you plan it out, you're less happy than when you just go and kind of, you know, make the best of it. Um, just like what you did in Turkey. <laughs> there was, what's kind of funny about Turkey is like, that was, that was my first, first proper foray into like, um, like true experimental survival. And I was doing it in a country that like could not be more top-down autocratic. And didn't you end up in Turkey? Can, can you explain why you ended up in Turkey too, specifically? Oh yeah, it's very simple. So I quit my job and I wanted to go travel for a bit. Uh, I really wanted to work in VC in Europe. And so I was convinced that I could fly into a country that bordered the EU and then slowly through the border. Um, Turkey was one of like nine countries in the world that I could go as an American, like Serbia and like Belarus were some of the other ones, Korea. So I was going to go to Turkey. I was going to get up to the border and probably scoot through it or figure out a way to get through it. I was convinced I could do it and then it wasn't happening. So after 89 days on a 98 tourist visa, I decided to uh, put my tail between my legs and head back to the, head back to the home ground. It's amazing. It's a, I, I have a similar, oh, I don't know how similar it is, but when I was in Brazil, um, I just didn't, you know, I didn't know anybody. And I, when I decided to go there too, it was completely intuition. I was, I was deciding to go to like some place in the Netherlands where they spoke English or I don't know, I think it was, I think there was some Dutch, uh, whatever, but I was deciding between going to the Netherlands and Brazil. And like everything in my head was like, it makes more sense for me to go to the Netherlands. Like I'll fit in there. Like I'll be able to speak the language and whatever. And, um, I don't know. It's kind of this thing that I think my parents instilled in me was like, seek out like change, like seek out like new, um, experiences. So I just, I just decided like, fuck it. I'm going to go to Brazil and I'm going to learn a new language, you know? And, um, when I went there, you know, I was with a lot of exchange students and they were, um, they tended to hang out with each other and they would like go clubbing and go to nice restaurants and they would all speak English because they're all American and some Europeans, but yeah, everyone would speak English. And I, <clears throat> I didn't have money to do that, first of all. And I also was like, if, why would I come here and like hang out with all these like students from Penn? You know what I mean? Like that, that's just like, I might as well stay at Wash U if I was going to do that. So I was, um, really like driven to like, I want to, meet Brazilian people and like do Brazilian things, you know? And, um, I had started skateboarding the summer before and I brought my skateboard there and, and my, uh, Portuguese professor was like, Hey, there's a skate park down the street. You should go there. And I don't know, 
like when you go to a skate park sometimes, at least for me, because I suck at skateboarding, it's kind of like intimidating, right? Like there's all these people like doing sick tricks. And this was in a place where no one was speaking English and I didn't know anybody, but I just fucking sacked up and I was like, all right, I'm going to go there. And it turned out to be like one of the most enriching experiences of my life because I, these guys were like, oh, he's American. He's so cool. Right. And we started talking and that's how I learned the language was I would like go with them and like skate all day go get beers. I would had dinner at their houses, met their parents and stuff. And, um, and then I also like, they taught me how to do some tricks and it's like still to this day, it's like, you know, skateboarding is one of, it's like part of who I am. Like, I love it, you know, and I, I do it everywhere I go. And, um, it just never would have happened, you know, if I was like, Hey, let me like plan this out and like stick in the comfort zone, you know? Yeah. I remember when you did that, I thought that was so crazy. We were like, 20 years old i was like this is pretty cool yeah by, by the time tj did it we were like a lot older i was like oh, i've seen it done before <laughs> <laughs> no offense Peach. No, i thought it was cool when you did it offense taken i'll see you guys later <laughs> um yeah it's super it's uh it's interesting i i think um there's a lot of paradoxes involved with this stuff, right? Like we're not just saying, oh, it's all bottom up or it's all top down or it's all planning, no planning. You know, you kind of have to intuit a little bit, you know, when it's appropriate. Um, I kind of like, I mean, we're talking order without design. There's also like the chaos order dichotomy, you know, where you want or order randomness dichotomy, where you want order in some parts of your life and randomness in others. And it's not like, it's a bit of yin and yang, right? You have to walk the middle path. You can't just have some de facto rule, like always order, always randomness, 50% order, 50% randomness. It's like, it's always context dependent. Um, yeah. Like, I think, I think what you said actually brings up how you were talking about, you know, what you look at your daily activities and it's like, what can I do now? to set me up to be where I want to be, it, it, that it kind of is a top-down design. Like, and I think that that too, in some ways where it's like, okay, I'm 26. When I'm 30, like what, what do I want my life to look like? And what can I do today? And what do I do tomorrow and the next day to, to get there, right? So I think, I think you're right. I think there's definitely a good balance of, it's not, it's not just oh, bottom-up is always the best way to go and just completely chaotic. Um, it's like this kind of like you got to sway between them and yeah. Yeah. There's kind of like, there's the hippie, right. That only lives in the present does whatever they feel at the moment, which is just complete chaos. Um, and there's something romantic about that. Um, but I think the issue there is if we're all like, as an individual, if you're always just doing what you want to do in the moment, there's, there's no, like you're less likely to make progress on things. Right. And so, like, one of the things is, like, Peter Thiel always, like, is kind of very critical of that mindset, right? Like, of just going with the flow all the time. Because um, if you just go with the flow all the time, you don't really have this idea of progress in mind. And he thinks progress is super important to mankind. So, um, I think that's kind of an interesting, you know, um, idea is, like, you, know, you don't want too much planning. Because obviously that crowds out the spontaneity. You don't want too much randomness because then you don't make any progress anywhere. It's like a random walk. Um, if you're like the most, if you're on a truly random walk every moment, you either go right, left, up, or down. The most likely place you're going to be is where you started, um, like mathematically. So uh, it's kind of you know you have to find that middle path. Yeah, go go with the go with the flow is is just a weak length. You, you want you want you want to you want to be fluid, but you want to be constantly trying things. And as soon as you get feedback, successful feedback, you lean into those things. You blitz scale them. And the stuff where you get negative feedback, you abandon. You do that quickly. You're trying to make progress. You're not letting you're not letting the river just take you down. I mean, you, you're doing some rowing. Yeah. It's I, man, I love where our shows. Uh, I love kind of the direction that we go it started with the city but it ends with yeah. the man <laughs> victor frankel um i mean it's just like i guess i'm always conflicted like i want clear answers 
And so I read something and order without design. I'm like, oh, no planning ever again, you know? And yeah. then you read something like Teal and you're like, oh, I need a life plan. And then da 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 da. And, you know, you got to. What are you going to say, Teach? Well, I was just going to say, like, I, I, I do that same thing where, like, I just read Future and Its Enemies, which is like all like pro dynamist. And we read Order Without Design, which is like all pro exploration. But actually, like, I feel like I kind of give short shrift to, to both the authors because what they're really saying is that um, you should only plan those building blocks um, th that, that, that form the bedrock of, of whatever basket of initiatives agents want to build on top of them, which I think makes, like, it makes a ton of sense. And it, it, uh, it bodes well for a lot of these like universal interoperable crypto protocols, which is like, you want to you want to build that bedrock, right? Like that's the part you want to plan. What's so tricky is like wh where do you stop, right? Like what's the what's the point of planning where the marginal cost exceeds the marginal benefit? Like that's just such a tricky problem that in a lot of ways, like the more practical answer is to just be extreme or without design or go extreme top down because being in this amorphous state is just tricky. It's tricky for a, an entity or or an organism. Um, but, but I, but I, but I do, I do think that the, these authors do, they do give credence to the idea that certain infrastructural elements are required for productive cooperation of, of economic agents or any agents. Yeah. I think you, oh, go ahead, Sam. I was just going to say, I, um, I was actually going to bring up the, th cause when you were, when you had been talking about like the protocol layer, I was going to bring up Ethereum and kind of. I think it'd be interesting to talk about how you could you could argue it, it kind of has elements of both you know like vitalik built this built this thing with with one kind of thing in mind right like it just decentralization is kind of broad um this broad you know approach but there's been all these different things built on top of it like i don't think he ever thought of DeFi. maybe i'm wrong about that right has he? Do you guys know? I don't think I mean, he was like ever had finance in mind when he built Ethereum necessarily. I think he kind of had like inklings of it, but yeah, there's no way he knew all this was going to happen. Yeah, but then parts of like parts of it, it you know, he it is kind of top down because even though it's decentralized, like I think a lot of people who build things on Ethereum and a lot of people who mine Ethereum, like they listen to Vitalik in one way or another. Like he's kind of like the boss of Ethereum. Um, Whereas, you know, if we compare it to Bitcoin, like there isn't, there's, it's a, you know, pseudonymous, pseudonymous Satoshi who isn't publicly like writing medium articles or anything. Yeah. A lot of times in software, your goal, like you're the engineer and at your level, you're trying to plan your level. And then what you want is you want to provide building blocks or components that then someone else can put together in novel ways that you didn't expect. So that's where like composability comes in. That was a big thing for AWS. They wanted to build primitives and then they can let app developers. So they provide storage and compute and then app developers can come in and mix it up in all types of way. And you know what happens? Uber pops out um, and Airbnb pops out. Um, and so you kind of see this, this reoccurring pattern where um, the exploration happens on the fringes or on the frontier. And then the layer below the frontier, there's been the, what there was a the iteration before there was exploration that arrived at a useful pattern that gets locked in. And then the, the exploration happens at the level above. So with Ethereum, they came in, they lock in like this idea of how the smart contracts and objects will communicate and then DeFi and NFTs start getting built on top of it for the city um, in order without design. They're saying, you know, the grid structure works really well. So lock in a grid structure, rock, lock in, you know, certain um, like public transport and then let everything happen at like the layer above and let like your job is just to get, give this nice platform and then let the exploration and discovery happen on top of you, um, which I think is kind of an interesting thing. And at the societal level, like, you know, um, once you have a certain thing, like a certain problem figured out, you kind of lock that in and then 
you know, the, the process of discovery reoccurs at the, the next level up. I mean, I think what, what's, what's neat about, um, what's neat about all these crypto protocols is, is ultimately like it, it all gets abstracted away, but ultimately the, the, the protocols are, are, are sets of rules that, uh, incentivize productive behavior amongst economic agents or amongst agents. Right. Um, and so if you provide those building blocks, like Chris was saying, that, that can be combined and you have like these like Pigouvian taxes built in to dissuade people from doing bad, dumb shit and to incentivize them to do good stuff. If you created that system, a robust incentive system, as long as you have that, it allows people to iterate and tinker in ways that are far more scalable than they've ever been before. I mean, the, 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 the city is there to create a legal and enforcement mechanism and create infrastructure for people to combine, right? But all the people that benefit from those structures have to be proximate to that city. What crypto is building or, or certain protocols are building, you know, whether it's Solana or, or EVM or whatever else, is they've built like one set of truth, one set of incentives for people to build on top of. And there's these certain like infrastructural layers that sort of like in, in the Uber example that are unrolling themselves. And in combination, it just makes the entire ecosystem more composable. For example, you have EVM, that's like a security layer. That's a secure smart contract layer that incentivizes people to cooperate and agree on a state of truth. That's a security layer. That's sort of like a law enforcement layer. You have the Oracle layer, basically saying like good data is entering the system for these developers to recombine on top of the security layer. Then you have like this, the actual security layer, which is like decentralized storage, ensuring that a single file is stored redundantly across time and space. Like these are the building blocks that aren't, they're not really top down planning, right? Cause you're just building the very base for people to iterate on top of. Like you, you need this stuff though. That that's key. That's like where planning comes in. I think you need to build those good systems at the bottom. Yeah. This is kind of related, but I've heard um, art students talk about how it's it's easier to be creative sometimes, like in the context of a class and like an assignment, as opposed to just like a completely blank canvas and no direction, like some love, like some kind of minimal structure of this is what your art's going to be. It can be easier to like build on top of that. Yeah, they they say it all the time in engineering, like necessity is the mother of all invention or something like that, basically, um, which then they'll use to basically give a team less resources and money at Amazon so that they'll be like, oh, this will make you more <laughs> inventive. <laughs> but I think that is true. Um, like the more constraints you have, it limits, the, it like uh, delimits the search space for ideas. So at Amazon, like if we had one, if we had like one end-to-end -end product we had to build or use case, we would have just built that exactly. But then if they gave us like five of them, actually what happened. So in 2020, we had like a bunch of different goals to hit and we needed to build all these different systems. Instead of building one system for each, we built like a series of components that then we could recombine to, to, fix, to, to uh, basically solve every use case. And so by giving all those different constraints, like you need to fulfill five different use cases, let's actually build like a minimum set of components that lets us get all these five use cases. And then potentially, you know, when the big boss comes down and be like, you need to do this shit too. We could be like, we could just recom keep recombining our components to solve everything that the, the top down bureaucrat wanted us to build. Um, so that was our strategy. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. Then my boss would be like, what's your vision for the team? I was like, well, we're just building these set of like core, you know, knowledge graph components. So no matter what the bureaucrats tell us to do, we could just solve it. We could, we could get it done really quickly. <laughs> and then, you didn't really like that. Have you, uh, I'm curious, Chris, have you, have, are you like involved in any way with an Ethereum development community? Like, I don't know, forums or, you know, telegram channels anything like uh not right now i'm not in, like i'm in discords where I, like i i kind of use them to search up 
like answers to questions I have personally, but I haven't answered anyone else's question. Um, and then in these communities or Discord channels, but they're super interesting. They kind of, I mean, the way I worked at Amazon is we had our Slack and we would all be talking about, you know, how things worked and how to fix things. And it was all proprietary, obviously. And then the Discord channels kind of just mirror that, but it's all out in the open, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, because as you continue this uh, this journey of of, uh, of learning Solidity and everything, like I'd be curious how that what, how how it compares with um, you know your experience being a developer at Amazon. Mm -hmm. It kind of I mean it, it's similar in the sense that, and this is the cool part about all the Ethereum development. It's all open source, so if you're curious about how something works, you can go read the code because it's all on GitHub, and you could potentially just go into whoever wrote that code's GitHub or whoever wrote that code, you could go into the Discord and ask them, you know. Um, people are busy, so it's not like they're always gonna be, oh yeah, let me answer your questions. And you obviously feel bad, just you're not gonna try, you're not gonna ping Vitalik like, yo, <laughs> how does this work? <laughs> but it's all out in the open. Um so dude, looking looking into someone's GitHub is kind of like lobotomizing someone else. Like you can look inside their brain. Yeah, it's so cool. Like if you're like, how does this work? You can literally just go read the blueprint. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's unreal. Um, cool. Anything else you guys want to? Uh, any closing thoughts? Nah, bro. I'm about to go do some sun maxing after this, though. That's a closing thought. I say invest in invariance. That's my takeaway from this. We must plan. <laughs> I like that. Did you just come up with that? Uh, no, I've thought about it before. Invest in invariance. <laughs> yeah beautiful all right well thank you uh to everyone listening and we'll see you on the next one